like a church tradition kind of thing. Do you realize it's actually a biblical word? And uh, basically it means, you know, that's right or that's true or let it be so. So can we say amen to what they just sang? All right, can we do one other thing? You can be turning your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. So look at your watch, look at your phone, turn around, look at the clock in the back. You'll note that it says 948. So don't pay any attention to it again after this. We'll be finished sometime before it's time to start the second service, okay? We just kind of had some extra stuff planned today, and the baptisms came up. So uh, it's been a good morning already, though, right? <laughs> All right, so we're in the book of Philippians, uh, near the end of, of chapter 3. And the title of the message today is, is Stand Firm, and it's really taken from a, a phrase in the text this morning, but I think it's certainly appropriate for the day and time in which we live. Because if we're honest, there's a lot of people going by the wayside. Um, you know, you hear stories about well-known Christians, quote, deconverting, giving up their faith. Uh, some of you may have listened to, it's kind of in the rage in uh, the, the church this summer, and I, I'm part of it. I'm waiting for the next episode, the Rise and Fall uh, of Mars Hill, the Christianity Today podcast, and the one that had Josh Harris, who was a pastor, wrote, I guess, Dating Goodbye on there, and he talked about deconverting and, and leaving the, the Christian faith. Uh, we, we read uh, about church attendance on uh, the decline, and uh, you know we read things like uh, you know one recent poll about a little over ninety percent of churches have a lower attendance to some level than they did pre-COVID, which is understandable. Uh, you know some people can't, shouldn't be out and about amongst people right now. Now I'm thankful for you guys in that you know before this last COVID spike this summer and again last week our attendance is really higher than it was before COVID. But at the same time, there are people who have gone by the wayside. And I'm not talking about people that are at home because of their health issues or family issues that are still connected online, connected to a small group, that kind of thing. I'm talking about just people who have just gone by the wayside, not because of COVID. And that breaks my heart. Um, you know, a lot of people are in despair. And you look at the problems in the world, everything that's going on, a lot of people are struggling right now. And so the question would be, well, what's the antidote to that? And it's not just one thing, but I believe biblically, and I believe what we're going to see in this text today, is that part of the antidote is looking to heaven, looking to eternity, and not just living with a focus on the here and now. Because, let's be honest, if all there is is the here and now, and if that's all of where our focus is, there's some reasons to despair. There's some reasons to give up. There's some reasons uh, to give in instead of standing firm. So, we're going to talk about heaven today. And I think there's a tendency among believers to kind of go to extremes when it comes to heaven. My impression of church growing up, and this could just be me, but it seemed like there was an obsession with heaven, 
to the exclusion of being focused on things that we needed to be focused on on the earth sometimes. And it seemed like heaven was like the great escape. And I don't think that's really completely biblical. But on the other hand, it's easy, and I've at times overreacted to maybe my, that perception that I just mentioned. It's easy, even if we're serving the Lord, we can get caught up in the here and now and trying to do what we ought to do now and kind of forget about heaven. But really, the biblical balance is for the thought of heaven to be a motivation for us to stand firm in faith, in godly living, in completing God's mission, and as, a, as an encouragement to live hopefully and joyfully in the midst of trials. So, let's try to find that biblical balance, and let's read in, in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now I tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And we're going to explore this in, in conjunction with going back to the first couple of verses of the chapter, talk about a couple of different sets of false teachers next week. So this is just kind of more the lead-in to what we're actually going to focus on uh, today. But in the first couple of verses, you, you saw false teachers who were legalists. Here you see false teachers who could be called antinomians or people who are promoting license or lawlessness. And, and so the last phrase there, it, it says they have their mind set on earthly things. But then here's the contrast, verse 20. Th those are people who profess to be Christians, but aren't truly believers. So their mind is set on earthly things. But genuine Christians, he says, for our citizenship, not will be, but is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Remember we talked about justification, God declaring us righteous, sanctification, we're growing spiritually. This is glorification uh, when we go to heaven and we're perfected spiritually, physically, when we're remade in, in the image of Jesus Christ. He says, according to the working by which he is able to even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, and remember, the chapter verse divisions are artificial. They're not inspired. And the therefore would show that this verse belongs to the preceding verses. They're, they're connected together. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. And, and, and Paul, again, his just heart overflows in his love and his gratitude toward the Philippians. My beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown... So stand fast, or some translations would say, so stand firm in the Lord, beloved. And so I think the main idea here, when you put this together, what he's saying to us is stand firm in trusting and living for Jesus because of the hope that we have in him. 
Stand firm in trusting and living for Jesus because of the hope that we have in Him. And the reason I say this is, again, therefore connects verse 1 with the preceding verses. And it gives the practical application. It gives a command to be obeyed, stand fast or stand firm, based on the truth that's just been presented. And remember, in, in, in Scripture... Doctrine is never given just for the sake of head knowledge. Doctrine is always given for obedience and practical application. And so I say stand firm in trusting because the Greek word means, according to Spiros Zodiates, stand firm meaning steadfast in the faith and profession of Christ. In other words, Because our citizenship is in heaven, and Jesus is going to return, and we're going to be glorified, and he's going to bring all things under his control, stand firm in our confession of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also, when you look at verses 17 and 18 and see the emphasis on walk, Paul contrasting his godly walk with the ungodly walk of these false teachers, and walk means lifestyle, he's saying stand fast not just in trusting, but stand fast in living because of this hope that we have in Christ, realizing that what we believe is what we do, ultimately. It doesn't matter what we say we believe. What we do shows what we believe. So stand firm. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't compromise. Don't leave the faith because there's hope in Christ now and forever because a better day is coming because the trial of today or the persecution of today or the challenge of today is not the end of the story. So what is this hope that can able, enable us to stand firm? And so I kind of want to break verses in 20 and 21 down into just four phrases here and Try to explain this hope that we have. So first of all, he says to us, stand firm because Jesus has made us a citizen of heaven. Again, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, the Philippians would have understood this because they were a Roman colony. And so they were Roman citizens, but they weren't actually in Rome. If we're saved, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We belong to the kingdom of God. That's ultimately our home. That's ultimately where our allegiance is. It's just not where our present location is physically. Colossians 1.13 and 14 say that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. We're either part of the domain or the kingdom of darkness, or we're a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, depending on, according to John 3 3, whether or not we've been born again. Because Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of God. And so when we're born again and forgiven of our sins, we're translated, we're delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is in our hearts now. Someday Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom on the earth, which is going to lead into his eternal kingdom, of which we'll be a part of, but we're already citizens of it. Just like when I travel to Honduras to do mission work, I don't stop being a citizen of the United States. 
So John MacArthur writes this. He says, We belong to the kingdom under the rule of our heavenly king and obey heaven's laws. They say, People talk about heaven, but it's just, it's hard to wrap our mind around. Because everything's so messed up here, it's hard to even conceive of a perfect place, right? Or say, I don't even know if I believe in heaven. Why should I believe in heaven? Let me just give you a couple thoughts on that. First of all, ultimately, I believe in heaven because I believe in, in fact, in reality, in history, in time and space, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, his claim to be the Son of God who came from heaven to earth and went back to heaven and who told us what heaven's like. I I believe what Jesus says about heaven because I believe that he rose from the dead. But also, I'd encourage you to think about this. It's from C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. He wrote this. He says, The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires, Unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself, and this is the key quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. And if we believe that, it gives us the conviction, it gives us the backbone to stand firm even in trials, even in persecution, even in the face of death. Listen to some quotes from people who were martyred, who were were killed for their faith during the Protestant Reformation. John Rogers was burned at, at, at the stake for standing up for the truth of the gospel. This was in England. The French ambassador was there, and he witnessed it, and he described him walking to his execution as, quote, it was as if this man was walking to his wedding. Roland Taylor, again, was executed for the gospel uh, during, the, during the Reformation, said, well, when he was about two miles from his spot of execution, the sheriff asked him how he felt. This was Mr. Taylor's reply. He said, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better. For now I'm almost at home, even at my father's house. John Bradford, who was burned at the stake with a 19-year-old named John Leaf, kissed the stake and said to Leaf, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Helen, Helen Stark A wife and a mom with a newborn and other children was drowned in a a sack. 
Before she was drowned, her husband was martyred first, executed in a different way. And so she gave her kids to a neighbor to take care of, went to her husband's execution before she was drowned, kissed him and said, Husband, rejoice, for we have lived together many joyful days, but this day in which we must die ought to be the most joyful unto us both, because we must have joy forever. Therefore I will not bid you good night, for we must suddenly meet with joy in the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand, if Jesus rose from the dead and heaven's real, they just did about the greatest thing you could ever do. But if that's not true, they're fools. Everything comes down to what's true. But the idea is if, if heaven's real and we're citizens of heaven to stand firm no matter what we're facing. Number two, we can stand firm because we are to stand firm because Jesus is, in, is coming back. Notice again what he says. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How eagerly are we waiting for his return? That phrase convicts me. It means an intense yearning for his return with a concentrated focus on Jesus. And listen, I know Christians have different viewpoints about the end times, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, true life, we believe it's a secondary issue. Uh, I have no interest in debating the details with you. But the, but the real issue is, are we ready for, are we looking for, are, are we prepared for, are, are, are we trying to reach the world in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do we believe Jesus was telling the truth? Are we looking for him to come home and take us back to the Father. Take us to our real home. Are we longing for that? You know, I've, I've been to Honduras um, about 40 times. I've lost count. I've been overseas a couple other times. The irony of that is I don't really like to travel. Um, I really don't like long car trips. I'm, I'm okay with flying, but really, I don't like being away from Robin. I don't like being away from my family. And, um, you know, when I, when I go to Honduras, and, and you know, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll go for, you know, usually when I go, it's like 10, 12 to 12 days. And, and so that's, that's a long time to be away from home. And sometimes it's harder than that. And that doesn't mean, I mean, I enjoy what I do down there. I have really good friends down there. But I don't like being away from home. And so sometimes you have to kind of play mind games with yourself to, to deal with that and just try to focus on what, what, you're, what you're doing. But then, you know, when you get within about a day or two of time to come home, then, and I've done it so many times, you know, I have routines and, and just way, way systems, ways that, that I, you know, do things to kind of simplify it all. But, you know, with, with about 24 hours away, like, I'm excited about going home. I think that's what this is saying about the return of Christ. And, and you know what? I mean, I love Honduras. I love the people there. But I don't know if I've ever come back into the United States even when you're having to go through 
uh, you know, border control, customs, all this kind of thing. But just like when you're touched down on American soil, I mean, it's just like there's just something special about it. Because this is where I'm a citizen of. And I think it's the greatest country in the world, whatever problems we may have. This is where I belong. This is what he's saying about heaven. That's really where we belong. That, that, that's really where our home is. Don't get so caught up in, in the things of this world that we lose sight of that. Number three, stand firm because Jesus will glorify us. What, what a phrase here, who will transform. It's a form of the word that we get our word metamorphosis from. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Again, justification, sanctification, glorification. Let's camp out here for a few minutes because I think this is maybe the least talked about of the things that we're talking about today. Here's some other verses of how the Bible describes it. Romans 8.23 says, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit now, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the ado- adoption, the redemption of the body. That's our future hope. Our soul's been redeemed, but it's still housed in these sinful, fragile, fallen, decaying earthly bodies. Someday that's going to even be redeemed, though. Uh, Later on in that chapter, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And the tense in the Greek indicates it's as good as done. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. I mean, this is a mystery. We don't really know what this is going to be like, but we know this. What, what, a, what a thought. We know that when he is revealed, when he comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And probably the biggest clue we have to what it means to be glorified is what we read in the Gospels about the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be like in some sense that's a mystery. Theologian Millard Erickson, who this when I had Danny Aiken's systematic theology class at Southeastern, we used his book. We called it uh, affectionately The Big Green Monster because it was green and thousands of pages with lots of big words. It seemed like an appropriate uh, description of it, but this is how he defines glorification. He says, glorification is multidimensional. It involves the perfecting of the spiritual nature of the individual believer, which takes place at death when the Christian passes into the presence of the Lord. It also involves the perfection of the bodies of all believers, which will occur at the time of the resurrection in connection with the second coming of Christ. It even involves the transformation of the entire creation. That's what we're talking about. Think about this biblically. Heaven is a perfect place illuminated by the glory of God. This is part of glorification. We couldn't really be glorified and not be in a perfected place, a perfect place. Um, 
Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned uh, for her husband. So think about um, you know, just seeing a radiant, beaming, beautiful bride walking down the aisle, and that's the analogy he uses for this heavenly city. He says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Everything's new. Later in that chapter, he he goes on to say about heaven, that I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life through faith in Jesus Christ? But, but we also see the glorification involves us being spiritually perfected. Just listen to these verses. Colossians 1.22, it says, In the body of his flesh, talking about the death of Jesus, through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's amazing. Think about all the sins that we have committed, but then through the sacrifice of Jesus, God sees us as holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jude 24, talking about in heaven, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, in other words, you're not going to lose your salvation because he keeps you, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Think about the church as a whole, Ephesians 5, 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. To be glorified means to be spiritually perfected. But to be glorified means that we're also physically perfected. Jennifer, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit for, for time's sake. So what, what does this mean? When, when, when you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and really you start reading in verse 35, but I'm going to skip ahead to verse 42, but just to kind of get you know, the whole thing, read in verse 35. But what does this mean for us physically? Well, it means this new body, this glorified body, this perfected body, this resurrection body. So our current bodies are corrupted by the effects of the fall and subject to disease and death, but our glorified bodies uh, are incorruptible, which means they are immune to d- disease and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It, all, it goes on to say that our current bodies are, are dishonorable. Uh, you know, they're weak, but our glorified bodies are glorious. It says the next verse, it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in, in, in power. Our, our present bodies are weak. But our glorified bodies are are, are powerful. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised 
empower. And then maybe the most important thing, our present bodies are natural, fashioned after Adam. But our glorified bodies are spiritual, fashioned after the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. You're like, just poof, you can be in a room, don't have to walk through the door. I mean, look at what Scripture says. It says it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body, and there's a spiritual body. I mean, this is like better than Avengers. It said, and so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. So what this means is, on earth, something's wrong with everything. But in glory, nothing's wrong with anything. On earth, something is wrong with everything, but in glory, nothing is wrong with anything. I mean, just think about all the problems we have around us. There's no supply chain problems in heaven. I mean, we got everything uh, we need there. We're perfectly provided for. I mean, the shelves aren't half empty. Right? There's no COVID in heaven. There's no sickness in in heaven. Don't need any funeral homes in heaven. I mean, spiritually... I mean, right now, can you imagine living a perfect day? I mean, like, can you uh, imagine living a day where you never sin, where you never say the wrong thing or, or think the wrong thing or fail to do the thing that you ought to do? I mean, like, where you're always sweet to your wife and, and always patient with your two-year-old. And, I mean, it's kind of hard to conceive of, right? Right? Can we comprehend that in heaven it's going to be the exact opposite? That we're never going to sin again? We're not going to mess up anymore? And, you know, if you're at a certain age, I mean, can you imagine no more aches and pains? I mean, no more decay of the body? Um... I mean, it's just like, I mean, I, I can relate to this because, you know, I, I've really worked hard at my health, and I weigh like 55 pounds less than I did at my peak, so I'm in better shape now at 51 than I was when I was younger, uh, but that doesn't mean that the joints feel that way, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, when I work out to try to keep that, then stuff hurts, but nothing's <laughs> all the way right with anything, but in glory... Nothing's wrong with anything. He's saying, let this motivate us to stand firm. You know, earlier in Philippians in chapter 1 and in one of the messages, um, we talked about trials and fulfilling the mission of God. And I used the famous missionary Adoniram Judson as an example. And, um, you know, I told you about how he lost a couple of wives before he had some kids, before he ultimately died on the mission field. But... Um, his first wife, like, they met and married in like a month. I mean, it was like even faster than Rusty and Lori Arwood. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And he actually kind of kept repeating this, this cycle. So I don't know if he was like that good looking or that charming or, or what. But, you know, he, he asked her to marry him. 
She said, you got to talk uh, to my father. And so he wrote this letter. Now, now, dads, can you imagine getting this? I mean, especially like if you've had the conversation with a young man asking to date your daughter, asking to marry your daughter. I mean, this is what, this is what he wrote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in the world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. I mean, we usually ask, like, what's your job? What's your, <laughs> you know, what's your life plan here? How are you going to take care of my daughter? I mean, this is what he asked. And her dad left it up to her. She said, yes, but listen, listen to the rest of what he wrote. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Him saying yes, or letting her make the decision. You know what he's effectively saying? He's like, yeah, I actually really do believe in heaven. I actually do believe in glorification. I actually do believe there's a better day coming. There's a day of peace. I believe there's a hope. Is the, does the way we live say that's actually what we believe? Because if we're living in fear, trying to protect our lives, compromising instead of standing firm, I, I don't care what we say or sing in church. We can sing, I can only imagine all day long, but that says what we really believe. And then last, we stand firm because Jesus will bring all things under his rule. No earthly ruler is going to have the final word. Verse 21 again, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Kenneth Weist writes, this will all be accomplished according to the working, whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. The word working is from a Greek word meaning power and exercise, energy, and is only used of superhuman power. The word subdue is the translation of a Greek military term meaning to arrange under one's authority as a general arranges his regiments in orderly array before himself. Thus it means here to bring all things with his divine, within his divine economy to marshal all things under himself. Or maybe to simplify it, we could go back to Philippians chapter 2 and say that someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign and set up his kingdom on the earth and administer justice and judgment and salvation. He is going to set everything right and restore everything to what it's supposed to be. So, I want to close by applying this, first of all, to Christians. 
And then second, to people who aren't Christians, are not sure where you stand, are not sure what you believe about heaven. So for Christians, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, stand firm, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord? Because Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. He's going to come back, bring us to himself, rule and reign, set everything right. And because of that, we can live confidently, firmly, steadfastly. Let me just illustrate it to you this way. And I, I will tell you as I tell this story that I did eventually repent of this. Kids, this is prescriptive. It's, not, or it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Don't try this at home because, and blame it on me because you'll get, you deserve whatever consequences you get, okay? But uh, there was a time when I was a teenager. I was at my grandmother's house, and I had an older cousin who came in, and there was a basketball game that was coming on. And I made him a bet that, he, I, that I could predict not just who won the game, but the exact score of the game. And he fell for it. I mean, because you're thinking a basketball game, generally each team is scoring uh, somewhere between 50 and, and, and 100 points, right? It's not like soccer where you got a decent chance if you bet 0-0 zero, zero that, uh, you know, you're going to win the bet. Uh, but, uh, you know, between 50 and 100 points. But, you know, I made the bet, and, and I was very confident in it. He fell for it. And lo and behold, the score of the game turned out exactly the way I predicted it, and I won the bet. So, well, how, how could I do that? Are you that knowledgeable about basketball? You should, like, be coaching in the NBA or something like that. No, this was back in the early days of ESPN. Now, if you're young, you, you can't relate to the greatness of the moment when ESPN began. I mean, like, you take cable for granted and, you know, internet and everything. But, I mean, like, when cable started, this was a big deal if you were a sports fan. Can I get an Amen. I mean, this, this, this was pretty huge. But the only problem was ESPN, when it first started, did not have a ton of programming. I mean, like putting tractor pulls on there to, to, to fill uh, time. And then, like, they ran the same sports center on repeat, and they would, you know, replay games all the time and this kind of thing. And the reason I made the bet in the way that I did is because I had seen sports center. Before the game came on, and the game had already happened, and this was a replay of the game, and I knew that, and he didn't know that, so I knew how the game turned out because I had watched Sports Center. Well, what I'm saying to us today is we can stand firm in hope because we've read the end of the book, and so we know how it turns out when it's all said and done. So Christians stand firm. But what if you're not a Christian? So let me ask you a question. And maybe you've heard gospel invitations like this before. Do you want to go to heaven? Most people are going to say yes, but you know, some atheists would say, well, I, you know, if there is such a thing as heaven, and you know, I'd be, I'd be bored. I don't want to be in heaven. You know what? I think they're right. Think about it this way. So let, let's just say, and, and, and I don't want to do this. Uh, I'm 
enjoy, blessed to do what I get to do here. And I don't really believe in retirement for, for pastors, preachers. Uh, I'm not saying I'm going to try to hang on here till I'm like 89 or something like that. But I don't believe you retire uh, from the Lord's service. But let's just say somebody came to me this week and said, here's a mansion you can live in. Here's all the money you need for the rest of your life. You can take early retirement. And this is what you get to do in your retirement. You, you get to watch Hallmark movies. You get to knit, knit and crochet. You get to listen to Southern gospel music. And you get to pet all the cats that will inhabit your mansion. Now, Hallmark movies are a fine thing. <laughs> Knitting and crocheting is a fine thing. Listening to southern gospel music is a fine thing. <laughs> Petting your cat is... It's a fine, it's a fine thing. <laughs> But not for me. I've never done those things. I have no desire to do those things. I'm not wired to do those things. If you tell me i got to retire and do that, I'm gonna, I don't care if you're giving me a mansion. I, I, don't, I don't care how much money you're giving me. To me, and again, I'm not, if that's your thing, that's what I'm just saying for me, because I'm not wired that way, that sounds miserable. So here's the thing, if you don't know Jesus, you don't want to go to heaven because you'd be miserable. The actual question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The actual question is, do you want Jesus? I mean, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and who rose from the dead? Do you believe He's returning someday? Do you believe that He's Lord and God and He's worthy and He'll give you life and He'll give you peace, He'll give you joy, He'll give you eternal life? But at the end of the day, do you want Jesus? You know, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know that you're a sinner? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news, but the good news is that Jesus... Romans 5, 8, that, that Jesus, that because God loves us, that uh, he demonstrated that love, that even while we were sinners, he died for us. And if you believe that he died for your sins, and like we talked about last week, if you stop trusting in yourself, if you stop trying to earn your own salvation, if you put all your trust, your confidence in Jesus, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever called on Jesus in faith and repentance and, and surrendered your life to him? Again, Christianity is not just about a fire. Iron Chun's policy, a free ticket to heaven. It's, it's not about you know, getting your best life now on the earth. What does Christianity have to offer? Christianity has Jesus to offer. Do you know Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you surrendered to Jesus? And if not, he invites you by faith to give your life to him right now. But the good news is, when you have him, you have all these blessings. 
to go with knowing him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.